0: The reading is on page 1011, 1011, in the Church Bibles. Page 1011, Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they left that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. May the word of Christ dwell
1: in us richly. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the climax of the first half of Mark's Gospel. You may remember that his gospel is really in two parts, following the kind of really principle two stages in Jesus' uh, revelation to us when he was on earth. And the first half of Mark's gospel answers the question, who is Jesus? And the second half, what is it that he has come to do? In answer to the first question, who is Jesus, we have here, just almost at the end of chapter 8. Halfway through the Gospel, we have Peter's answer in verse 29. You are the Messiah. Now this is not something that uh, he realised on first meeting Jesus, though I guess when he was um, asked to follow him, um, that is how he hoped it would turn out to be. We believe in progressive revelation, not only just in the history of the universe, that we've learnt more as time has gone on, but of course when Jesus sort of pitched up on earth, he didn't sort of suddenly kind of come out with everything as to who he was and tie all the loose ends together in one speech. Um, No, he took three years to gradually, through his, uh, his miracles that were signs, and evidence as to who he was through his teaching, so people could come to understand what they're seeing and hearing, and through his character, realising how genuine and how honest and how much integrity he has, that uh, he gradually reveals himself. But even though Peter has come to say, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, His understanding, as we'll see at the end of chapter 8 in two weeks' time, was still inaccurate and incomplete. The apostles don't get the full realisation of who Jesus is and what he came to do until after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in that particular intensive six-week period when he appeared to them and taught them. Everything he'd said all started clicking into place and making sense. So this week we find that Jesus has just returned from Gentile territory to Jewish territory on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And no sooner than he's had time to say shalom, his adversaries, the Pharisees, are on to him with their request for a sign, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply, you know, just as you do when people are going on and on about the same thing, you know. He sighed deep, you know, he was human. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Well, the kind of sign that the Pharisees wanted was the kind demanded when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness the devil tempted him to turn stones into bread or to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, which would be a bit akin to jumping off the top of the Churchill Plaza. And rather than kind of following the laws of gravity and crashing to the ground and be killed, somehow or other, you know, because God has got plans for Jesus, you know, the elite angels would be winging it in there as quick as anything and enable him to float down to earth in one piece, unharmed. But Jesus is not into this kind of trickery business. He's not into doing things which might force people to believe in him. Now by my reckoning, so far in Mark's Gospel, and remember Mark's Gospel's half the length of Luke and Matthew, so there have been more than this, but this is what in Mark's Gospel, so far we've had Jesus perform three miracles over evil forces. Nine miracles on individuals being healed of pretty incurable diseases, and three occasions when an unspecified kind of multitude of people were miraculously healed. And then we've had four miracles over nature, including the feeding of the 4,000 most recently and the 5,000 a bit earlier. That's 5,000 and 4,000 men. There are women and children as well, all from. A minuscule amount of fish and bread. If that's not enough by way of signs then the Pharisees are not going to believe at all are they? These miracles were meant to get people to ask questions. Who has authority over the powers of evil? Who has authority over nature to command it and speak and it is done? Who who can create out of nothing? Who can restore instantly and completely somebody that nobody else could possibly do? Not then, not now. Who can bring the dead back to life? And you think the answer was pretty obvious. But if you've decided that Jesus of Nazareth is not the Messiah, largely because of the consequences it will mean for you, then no more signs are of any use at all, are they? Jesus has given them ample opportunity. So now we read that he leaves them and moves on, once again outside of the territory of Israel. Verse 13, Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So, If you realise that uh, this particular point in your life, that God is getting through to you, don't procrastinate. Yeah, do weigh it up carefully, but don't procrastinate. Now is the time for you to respond to his prompting. He won't prompt forever. He's put the evidence before you. You have to make your decision. Well, next we come to the Pharisees and uh, Herod and um, well, the Herodians, we read 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Jesus warns them, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now you may be surprised to know, although I think I did mention it once, that um, I have had a Mary Berry cookbook since 1976, would you believe? No, you probably wouldn't. I didn't realise until last year, because I've only ever used it for two recipes, chilli con carne and something you got out of a tin. So, you know, the other however many 600 recipes were never looked at by me. But uh, you won't be surprised to learn that I know nothing about baking, because I never do it. And so for the benefit of others of you, and I'm sure, you know, you won't want to put your hand up that you have no culinary skills. I'll tell you what I've learned about yeast. Yeast, amongst other things, makes bread dough rise. The essential of any bread dough are flour, water and, of course, yeast. As soon as these ingredients are stirred together, enzymes in the yeast and the flour cause large starch molecules to break down into simple sugars. The yeast metabolises these simple sugars and exudes a liquid that releases carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol into existing air bubbles in the dough. I didn't actually get this from the Mary Berry cookbook. (laughs) uh, um, If the dough has a strong and elastic gluten network, the carbon dioxide is held within the bubble and will begin to inflate, just like someone blowing bubble gum. And more and more tiny, uh, rather, as more and more tiny air cells fill with carbon dioxide, the dough rises and we're on the way to leavened bread. There we are. So leaven represents an unforeseen but pervasive influence. Jesus is giving a general warning against unconsciously accepting ideas and practices typified by the example of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Let their ideas creep into your thinking and it uh, (coughs) may be just a sort of simple thought but it could have catastrophic and far-reaching distortions in the way we're meant to understand life. Now the Pharisees were dangerous because of their legalism, their belief that it was possible to be perfect and to fulfil the law. This gave them their unattractive self-righteousness a sense that they had earned a place in God's good books, an attitude which left them feeling very smug. But of course, they were hypocrites. They redefined the rules so that they could keep them. They loved playing with words. The Herodians, like their religious allies, the Sadducees, were dangerous because of their political expediency. That is, gaining political advantage rather than doing What is the just and right thing to do? They're also dangerous because of their equivocation, their use of ambiguous words to conceal truth. And they were dangerous because of their materialism, as if that's the most important thing. Might be useful bit of insight as we listen for another two weeks to the politicians trying to kind of grab our votes, mightn't it? But uh, in respect of who Jesus is, these uh, Pharisees and Herodians represent two different kinds of dangers. The Pharisees represent people whose minds are confidently made up and are fixed in spite of the evidence. The Herodians represent those whose minds are in the range of indifferent to uncommitted, refusing to make a decision on the question of Jesus's identity. But Jesus' disciples are still stuck thinking about bread, only having brought one loaf between them. We read 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Jesus must have had tremendous patience. Here his disciples are thinking and worrying about food when they've just seen him a few days before feed probably 12, 15,000 people with next to nothing. I mean, what's on their head? What's in their minds? What are they thinking about? So, 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes that fail to see and ears that fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke five loaves for five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? you know whether you're thinking in terms of who can create out of nothing whether you're thinking in terms of the this is a foretaste of a, well it's a foretaste of the messianic banquet that they were expecting at the end of time when they'd sit down with god together whether you're thinking about the in the world in the in the Sinai desert when they were provided miraculously by god each day manna from heaven you know are you so thick you can't quite grasp this? You know, it's, staring, it's blatantly obvious. He has incredible patience. It was so easy for them to forget what Jesus has done. Not because they failed to kind of be present and to see these incidents, but because they failed to digest their significance and then to live in the light of them. Jesus' miracles, unlike the signs that the Pharisees demanded, did not compel faith. But those with faith did register their significance. He wants them to observe, to think deeply and to realise who he is. And now the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is is on the northeastern, well it was on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, but they've taken so much water out the lake um, for irrigation that the water level dropped in some places which were once on the seashore and now a few hundred yards inland, and this is one of them. In fact, if you go there today, it's an uncleared Syrian minefield left over from the 1967 Yom Kippur War. So if you do ever go there, don't be tempted to ignore the yellow signs on your holiday, or it might go off with a real bang. (laughs) So, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. You see, like the deaf and dumb man back in uh, Mark seven thirty-one to 37, this miracle takes place in two stages, which has led some commentators to dub them the difficult miracles. Again, though, someone is brought to Jesus with a condition that no one else can cure. So clearly, the popular expectation was that Jesus could do such miracles. And again, this miracle takes place in public with many witnesses around. It's not just enough, though, to have eyes that can see. For fully functional eyesight, the brain must understand what it sees. Go back to 18. Jesus realises this. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear, Jesus asks them. They cannot speak properly, we saw a while ago, because they had not heard properly from God. And they cannot see properly because they've not understood what it is they're seeing. You see, Jesus is always trying to make people see, and they often respond very slowly. But then we have here in 27 to 30 how... Peter does recognise Jesus. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. The Herod who was ruling when Jesus was born was called Herod the Great, and he died in 4 BC, but not before he'd managed to murder two of his children, who he perceived as a threat. And on his death, his kingdom was divided among the remaining sons. Herod Antipas was perhaps the more successful and the more well-known, and we'll come to him in a moment. But the Herod that commands our attention here first is Herod Philip. He had the very northeastern part of the country, and to celebrate his position and to suck up to the Roman emperor, he extended uh, one one of these little villages to become Caesarea, in honour, of course, of the emperor, and Philippi in, of course, honour of himself. Caesarea Philippi is just over a 1,000 feet above sea level, so it enjoyed a rather more pleasant climate. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was largely a Gentile area. Since the disciples are being rather slow on the uptake, Jesus decides to force the issue of his identity by asking them a very direct question about himself. On the way, he says... We, who, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they reply, 28, some say John the Baptist. Well, this in fact was the view of Herod Antipas, who ruled the area of Galilee, and the area of what is today the western part of Jordan that backs onto the Jordan Valley. He had built Tiberias, that was his way of sucking up to the emperor on the uh, city on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. And um, he was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded because John had criticised him for his adulterous second marriage. Others say Elijah. Three times in the Old Testament, Elijah is spoken as a forerunner of the Messiah. He's the kind of warm-up artist, if you like. And uh, some people are beginning to think that Elijah has arrived in the person of Jesus. And still others say one of the prophets. In Matthew's account, Jeremiah is the prophet who is identified, presumably because, like Jesus, Jeremiah spoke with authority and yet suffered a lot at the hands of the people. Now these views display the kind of diversity of opinion about Jesus in the first century. And they also display the diversity of kind of Jewish expectation at that time. It's interesting, isn't it, that nobody thinks he's a great moral teacher. So this is time to cite C.S. Lewis. You may have heard this before, but it's well worth repeating. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, after a good evaluation as to the, uh, the person of Jesus, he says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit and kill at him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Lewis says... He did not intend to. But it's one thing to be aware of public opinion, it's something else to have to make up your own mind. So Jesus homes in on the disciples. He says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? And that's when Peter answered, You are the Messiah. That's the Hebrew title. The Christ is the Greek translation. Jesus accepts Peter's assessment, which again undermines the simplistic Jesus is a good moral teacher possibility. And again, there is this command to silence. Before, the silence has been, don't tell them about all the miracles of healing that I'm doing because I'm just going to get inundated with all people for the wrong reasons. But now he's warned them, not to tell anyone about him. Now that's most probably because Jesus is aware, and we'll see it by the end of the chapter, that Peter's, and doubtless the other disciples' understanding, is fuzzy. It's like men as trees walking. And he doesn't want them misleading people, albeit with the best intention. They have got a a partial a gradual, an incomplete, and also because it's incomplete, a therefore inaccurate view of him as yet. It's developing. So, keep quiet for a while. Let Jesus do the talking, he's saying. You know, it's not surprising, is it, that they hadn't kind of quite got it all together because the Old Testament has many strands, and the disciples had particularly latched onto one, the patriotic Davidic Messiah, liberator of the people theme. that's what they've latched onto. They'd not picked up the divine Son of Man from heaven, or the suffering servant who emerges to atone for the sins of the people. and they'd not kind of synthesize all these different themes of which they're just sort of two or three. He's not actually synthesized them together so that they all cohere and they make sense. They were groping along in the dark at this stage, gradually becoming more enlightened as they enjoyed greater exposure to Jesus' teaching and the unfolding of his mission, what he had come to do. Of course, for us, we don't have to wait for Jesus to come to the end of his mission. We don't have to wait until he's taught some more, until he has uh, suffered and died on the cross, until he's been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. Because we can read to the end of the story. We can read to the end of Jesus' time on earth. And we are in a position now to make our own appraisal.